0: the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So one of the exciting developments in the basic income space recently has been the creation of the Economic Security Project. This is a fund for a variety of different projects related to basic income. Not only does the
1: Economic Security Project fund different initiatives in the basic income space, they actually have a few of their own. And I was lucky enough to sit down with Natalie Foster and Kara Rose
0: Fabio from there and and talk to them a bit about what they're working on and what they have coming up. So here's Jim's Q&A with Natalie and Kara from a live event in San Francisco.
1: So I am very excited about tonight's discussion. I think as many of you in the audience know... Basic income over the last couple years has really picked up a lot of steam. If you, back in 2014, early 2015, if you went to someone and said, what do you think about basic income? They might tell you you're crazy, or that was no way, shape or form, something that we'd possibly consider in the next decade. And now we actually have folks like Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, people who are really helping to shape what is the mainstream political narrative, talking seriously about the idea. So, Along with that, it starts to make much more sense when we think about basic income, not to do it just in the theoretical space, but to actually say, well okay, how do we move towards that? What are the actual steps that are going to eventually get us to universal basic income? And a very, very important one of those is, how do we fund these efforts? As we start to have more people who are passionate and ready to support the idea, what does it look like to actually provide the financial support behind that? And so I'm very excited to have both Kara Rose and Natalie from the Economic Security Project here to talk to us about their efforts. So welcome. Thank you. So to start off with, why don't you tell us what the Economic Security Project is?
2: The Economic Security Project was launched um, after Universal Income Project. And it was really, um, we're essentially a network of academics and activists and um, researchers and entrepreneurs and technologists and capitalists and socialists and libertarians who um, believe that cash is, uh, that economic security, I should say, is a human right and that cash may be one of the simplest ways to get there. We function, uh, one part, like a fund. So any of you are in philanthropy We do both aligned and pooled giving um, to support research and advocacy and um, cultural engagement around cash stipends around the universal basic income. Um, But we also support a network of people who are uh, actively on this path, many of whom have day jobs, uh, some of whom are running for office, uh, and others who, that's Owen, I hope he'll talk in a moment, he's running in the East Bay on on the very subject, uh, and so we, we get together and um, talk about quest- questions like how you know it, we should pay for it, um, what it should look like, how we talk about it, we will commission polling and research and that sort of thing. So broadly speaking, we're both a fund and a, um, a network su- support center.
1: So Natalie, as you mentioned, you've been working on basic income for a while prior to the economic security project. In fact, I think a little known fact is you're one of the original co-founders of Universal Income Project. What was your motivation to start Economic Security Project, as opposed to any other effort in the basic income space?
2: So I think that for me, I've spent the last several years um, thinking a lot about the American dream, and the future of the social contract, and specifically the changing nature of work in today's world, and what that will mean uh, as we move forward. So I had launched something called peers.org, which supported people who worked in alternative work arrangements, meant outside of paid time off and workers comp and um, any sort of you know unemployment insurance and it prompted me and my colleagues to think a lot about well what is the social contract of the future if if it was built for an industrial age where everyone or at least you know white men had a nine to five job that would give them a pension and allow them to you know buy a house and go on vacation and sort of live out the quote unquote American dream uh, and if that's going away and maybe wasn't actually available for people for some people for a period of time Then what will replace it uh, and how do we how do we build something that supports all kinds of work new work work? We see in the Bay Area the gig work And uh, you know freelancing uh, as well as just part-time work. That's the only kind of work available to people and um, uh, Went down that path and came to realize that I think in addition to figuring out those questions for you know paid time off and like retirement that income, that capped, uh, supplements is is actually part of a future social contract. So that's where I, that was my personal journey in. And then this year, um, my mom went on social security. She turned 65. And so what that means for all of you young whippersnappers is that my mom gets a check every month from the government for a fixed amount that she knows she can count on. And that has totally changed her life. She was able to quit her minimum wage job working for a nonprofit in Colorado. And she now takes care of my sister's kid, her grandson, her first grandson, a couple days a week. She volunteers with her church. Um, she's really engaged in her community because she has that freedom to do it. And that freedom to pursue the life that people want to pursue is what I hope for everyone uh, in the country and actually believe we could get there. And so that. That's been a personal uh, motivator for my basic income work.
1: So Kara, your role with the Economic Security Project is Special Initiatives Director. What does that mean?
3: What does it mean? I sound like a ninja or something, like I'm out on special ops. Um, It's not quite that glamorous, but it is exciting. Um, So I uh, have a background in the arts. I'm an artist, a theater artist, playwright type person. And I'm also in media. Um, so I'm just kind of general storyteller, and um, I was brought on, uh, Natalie kind of invited me to come into the group to look at how we can engage people with some of these really big, crazy ideas. Um, and so the two projects that I have, um, one of them is a speculative fiction contest. It's called Into the Black. And um, I hope you'll all write a story and submit. there. due November 1st. You have some time. And basically, that's just, you know, to really get our imaginative juices flowing and tap into um, what life could look like if everybody had economic security. Um, and, Uh, So that's a writing project, and then the second project is called Cash Conference, and that's coming up, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but um, really uh, that's a live event. We can get everybody together, much like we are here today, so that we can have an ongoing conversation about all the diversity of approaches to economic security through cash. Um, We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but um, it's a pretty pretty wild bunch of different approaches to how we might get to something like a universal basic income. And so um, the Cash Conference is kind of our effort to unite everybody and um, kind of see all of our common ground and um, talk about how we get there.
1: So that raises a great point. We talked about what the most common definition for universal basic in- income is at the beginning, but there are lots of different ideas out there. So. What specifically does economic security projects, what are your policy or policies that you push forward and, and how do you see those connecting to one another?
2: We support unconditional cash. And we think that it's gonna come in, uh, none of us know exactly how we'll get there in the US, but we we think it'll come in a variety of different ways and we, we wanna support a bunch of different approaches to it. Um, one is sort of the big picture idea. Uh, how do you, you know, how would you, Move unconditional cash stipends to everyone in the U.S. You know that's sort of the big idea that you you all promote, um, and you know the roadmap to that is not totally clear, but I think it's getting clearer. There are ways in which you could get there in the short term that often we'll call like stepping stone ideas. So one version that's getting a lot of um, interest and support is reimagining and expanding the Earned Income Tax Credit which is part of the tax code right now uh, that says if you earn below a certain amount, you receive money back from the government if you qualify for a set of things. So you have to work for it. It's it's based on the income that you bring in, um, but you um, do receive unconditional cash, different from other parts of our welfare system, as you all know. So the EITC uh, is what it's called. It's bipartisan, like you know, a, a bunch of Republicans and Democrats like it. Um, it's It's been around for 40 years federally, and in California just a couple of years. Uh, and so there's a lot of room to expand it. So you could imagine um, making it so that s- many more people are actually recipients of the Earned Income Tax Credit. You could imagine making it monthly. Uh, you could imagine actually expanding the definition of work. So right now it means you know if you earn W-2 income or 1099 income Meaning, if you have a traditional nine-to-five job and/or you are an Uber driver, that counts um, toward your Earned Income Tax Credit. But maybe so should uh, childcare, unpaid childcare, which is very uh, useful for society. Maybe so should being a student um, count toward your Earned Income Tax Credit. So there's a lot of um, energy in reimagining parts of the existing set of laws. Um, another version is the child allowance. So most uh, developed countries have a version of the child allowance, which is a stipend to parents to help raise their children, again, unconditional, uh, how they use it. It has significant impacts on children's health, on educational outcomes, um, you know, birth weights, hospital visitations, cash is a pretty amazing tool. Uh, so is, is child allowance actually one of the ways in which you could sell Americans on the idea of more unconditional cash? So these are the kinds of, th- and a third version that I think we talked about last time I was here um, that uh, some really interesting work was done on in California is this idea of putting a price on carbon, the carbon that's admitted into the atmosphere and distributing those dividends to every resident. And so we actually support a campaign in Washington, D.C. to do just that. They've built this really, inter- it's an environmental group that's built this really interesting um, Multiracial, multi-jurisdictional set of players to support a campaign in in the District of Columbia to put a price on carbon and then distribute the dividends to everyone. And so essentially what that mean is people in D.C. get used to receiving a check um, regularly and then you could start to to build on that. So we're interested in the broad way of thinking about unconditional cash, as well as, um, you know, some of the more stepping stone approaches.
1: And it's worth noting there are other political campaigns moving on those fronts. That Rokana down the South Bay has a bill at federal level proposing a $1 trillion increase in the earned income tax credit, which has been explicitly tied to basic income and that there's other state efforts underway. So this is stuff this isn't theoretical, this is actually stuff that's happening. So as basic income has picked up steam, I think more and more often you hear people talk about it as a movement and something beyond just individual advocacy efforts. This is a broad question, but I'm curious to hear your thought, Natalie, and and maybe yours as well, Kara. What do you feel like needs to be part of a movement? What needs to go into it? And in particular, how do you see funding playing a role?
2: Well, I think right now, one of the questions is, are we in a basic income moment or a movement? And I actually think we could debate that all night and we'd probably all have like different opinions on it. Um, the danger I feel is that we squander this moment where there's a lot of attention put on it where now you have, uh, to, to reference what Jim was saying, over the last few weeks Hillary Clinton's book has come out and in it she said, we considered a form of universal basic income like what they have in Alaska. Um, we read Peter Barnes's book, which you all should read with liberty and dividends for all. And we uh, didn't include that in our campaign, and that was a huge mistake, because it was a transformative idea that would have made a big difference, and like, eh, who cares how you pay for it? <laughs> no one else worried about that in this election. Um, and But that's a big moment. That's a big moment for something that's considered kind of an out-there idea. And So as it starts to move more mainstream, how do you support organizations who are legitimizers and who are... Um, um, the ways in which you know people are organized in our politics today. How do you support organizations to work on it? Um, so the Center for Popular Democracy is an organization we support uh, to think about and reimagine the Earned Income Tax Credit. Um, so groups that have a long history of being in the space, and then groups like um, Presente and Color of Change, who have a more recent history of being in the space, and then you know Universal Income Project, that's been around two years. Um, how do you, um, you know, sort of support the organizing infrastructure uh, like this where there's meetups happening all over the country uh, where people feel like, you know what, I actually have engaged with this idea enough. I'm, I, I feel like I'm an expert now, I can start writing on it or I could, you know, start to talk to my friends about it or call my elected official about it. Uh, how do you have a support for candidates to run on it? Um, candidates for the state legislature, like state assembly, like Owen or, um, you know, candidates for president or, or even higher. Um, who who does the polling and the research to get you there, uh, and so forth. So that's just some of my thoughts. Do you have more on
3: Yeah, sure, I know. I
2: think um,
3: I think uh, most of my colleagues have been in the world of politics and in the world of policy and um, are very data-driven, which I really appreciate. Um, and I feel like I'm kind of on the opposite side of the fence there, where um, we can have all the data. And in fact, we already have a lot of great data about how cash works, um, but that it's really an ideological shift that we're trying to ignite. And so that makes me feel like um, yeah, you know, simple ideas like a speculative fiction contest, but really getting together and talking about what are all of our common ideologies and how do we advance those together um, and seeing seeing our kind of platform and progress as not isolated from universal health care or some of the other fights that are happening that all need to happen, um, so um, yeah, so I do think that there's um, I think it's a it's a movement as soon as we say it is, and I think I think that's what we're here to kind of um, try to do is say yes, it is a movement.
1: Um, so you've named a number already, but can you tell us? about other efforts that you've funded and what the motivation was?
2: Yeah, so under the bucket of research, um, most of the research happening right now around basic income has to do with like how it impacts the individual. What behaviors change? So internationally, that's the majority of what they're looking at. In Canada, the Ontario experiment is that. Y Combinator's experiment is that. So we fund the Y Combinator experiment um, and we support more like that. I think that's great. We, I also think there has to be research around, how do you pay for this? How does the math add up? How could we get from A to B? What are the macroeconomic impacts of giving people cash? You know, What does happen to inflation? All the questions I know you get when you ask, when you talk about this in, in groups of people, what happens to housing? Um, and, and so we have tried to fund mostly in the research space answering those questions. Um, a recent Two recent things I'll talk about there is, one, the Roosevelt Institute um, recently did two important studies, one being uh, a lit review of all of the basic income experiments in the U.S. Many of us have forgotten. In the 70s, there actually were tens of thousands of people who received cash through experiments, and we learned a lot. And that uh, has sort of generationally gone away. So pulled together a lit review of everything we know in the U.S. But then the second paper that they put out two weeks ago um, said that if we financed cash for every resident in the United States through debt, the American economy would grow by 12%. So that's the first time that economists have sat down and run big macro models and actually looked at um, what would happen. And so it's the kind of thing that I think is really important for policymakers to take this seriously. Uh, so we fund that sort of research. We also looked at Alaska. Uh, where I think many of you know for the past 40 years people have received unconditional cash yearly. Uh, What did we, what do we know from that? What are people using their uh, dividend in Alaska from? What are they using it on? Uh, And found out that it's very popular that people would rather institute an income tax or higher sales tax than get rid of the dividend and that is in a famously anti-tax state like Alaska. Uh, Three is that people actually have no concern that it's universal. They believe that Alaskans all own the oil and should all um, be part of the bounty. And it doesn't bother them that a millionaire gets it as well as someone who's destitute. So that was really interesting. Um, And that people tend to save it. 72% of Alaskans uh, save that dividend when it comes in and use it on a kid's educational account or um, what have you. So that's the kind of research uh, that we fund. Am I talking too much? Do you want me to keep going? 2 is on the advocacy, so I talked about the campaign in Washington DC. Um, and I've talked about the earned income tax credit work. So I th- actually think that's a majority of um, what we've funded in the advocacy space, different groups who have a plan in a different state, you know, we want to take this to our state legislature um, or you know, we think this is a possibility uh, t- to move to move forward. And then I think you should talk about the cultural yeah. stuff.
3: And we also fund a third bucket, which is cultural endeavors. So um, we're actually getting ready. I don't want to scoop myself too much, because we're about to get ready to announce all of our grantees. Um, and we're doing that Wednesday. And um, so you can find those if you go to our website, economicsecurityproject.org, which has just been redesigned. It's lovely. and. Um, you know, we'll be on Twitter and everything. But, um, but we do fund uh, cultural endeavors, so those can be movies. And we have, in fact, uh, funded a couple documentaries that are in progress. And um, also, um, we're, we just funded a big mural project. So it would be like public art in a couple different cities um, across the country um, talking about universal basic income.
1: Can you tell us, what does the process look like? How do you, how do you find these efforts? Once you hear about them, how do you decide, is this a worthwhile investment? What does that whole thing look like?
2: Yeah, we <laughs> so we've been around nine months. And in the beginning we thought, oh, let's be very light on process, which actually means more chaos on the other end, is the thing we've learned. Uh, so now there is actually a form that's on our, I think on our website that we ask folks to fill out. Um, so if you have a great idea of something you wanna launch, please do it um, and flag that you have um, submitted it. And uh, that's the that's the basic process. Um, there are three co-chairs of the economic security Project. I'm one, Chris Hughes is a second, and Dorian Warren is a third. Uh, and so the decisions uh, are made by us once every few months. And so we will accept, as of now we're accepting applications on a rolling basis. Very light on process.
1: So you funded at this point, dozens of different efforts. Can you say a little bit about what you feel like right now is most missing from the space? And I'd be curious to hear both your perspectives on that.
3: Obviously, I'm a storyteller, so I would like to see more stories getting told. Um, Not just about the need, but kind of, um, so it would be like first-person perspectives. which I think we could use more of, but I also think that um, there's kind of a lack of, um, we have a lot of media coverage, which is great. In recent months, we've gotten a lot more, we, as in all of us here who are interested in universal basic income, have gotten a lot more coverage, (laughs) Um, but um, it is very focused on tax interest. In UBI, and um, one of the things that we're hoping to do at the conference is kind of bring to light a lot of the rich history of UBI in um, in this country, particularly around Black liberation movements, and um, and also about the impacts beyond um, kind of like the kind of hard impacts that could happen beyond like. We all get to eat and have shelter. Like, what does that really mean? Like, how could that really change somebody's life? So that goes from like gender justice to racial justice and what those could look like for a lot of the fights that are already happening right now. How UBI could change that? So um, I would, yeah, I would like to see more storytelling efforts like around the greater context um, and kind of all of the various threads being pulled together um, in that way.
2: No, I think that's exactly right. We get calls like once a week from a reporter saying, so I'd like to talk to someone who's received a basic income. And we have to say, well, you could call someone on Social Security (laughs) uh, or you could call someone on Alaska who gets it like once a year. Um, But outside of that, you can't because Y Combinator study will be very off the grid. It's very important for the academic integrity that like you don't, that reporters and people don't figure out who's receiving the income because it'll mess up the random control trials and that sort of thing. So that study won't solve the problem of reporters wanting to tell a story in a first person. And so I also think we should have a network of cities across the United States that launch demonstration projects. You should have mayors who are saying, I want this in my town. Here's 25 families who I'm giving you know a check to. Maybe it's funded publicly or maybe it's funded through philanthropy at first. Um, to say this is who I'm giving a check to, here's how their life is changing and and they're able to talk uh, about that as well. So I think that's a really big need um, that we have. But we also need more campaigns up and running. Like I'd love to see more reimagining the Earned Income Tax Credit campaigns in states and cities um, across the US. And then of course the roadmap of how we get to the big idea.
1: So lots and lots of things. Kara, uh, you mentioned earlier this speculative fiction contest, which launched just a month ago, a few weeks ago. Tell us more what the motivation is there. What, yeah, what inspired that idea? Yeah.
3: Sure. Well, I can't take credit for the idea myself. This was an idea that was brewing um, before I got came on board, but um, who doesn't like science fiction? I don't know. I mean, I love it. And also, um, one of the reasons I love it is because it allows you to kind of address some of the social issues that we have in today's contemporary society that we're dealing with at the moment. Um, and And frame it in a new way so that everybody has access to that story and that everybody can imagine themselves there. So I think um, that's one of the really kind of powerful tools of speculative fiction. Um, The reason I'm flip flopping between science fiction and speculative fiction, some of you might know if you're like a really hardcore sci fi person. I'm not. you know, going to say that it has to be hardcore science fiction. I think that it could be a really compelling, um, near future, personal drama. That would be speculative fiction about how a universal basic income could change lives. So that's why we're calling it speculative fiction. But the idea, short fiction, yeah. Oh, yeah, short. So 5,000 words. Um, and the idea is that, yeah, and 5,000 words is pretty short, but um, that you should be able to tell, you know, Rad, uh, Ray Bradbury does it, you should be able to do it too. 5,000 words. Um, and uh, And yeah, that it really just like allows us to kind of you know, step away from the questions of how you pay for it and the questions of, like, you know, pragmatism and look at what it could be like. And that um, kind of transformational power of imagining yourself um, in a better situation than you are now is, like, a real gift of speculative fiction. Um, And so, yeah, I think that that's some of the... um, that's some of the background. Also, it gave us a chance to really reach out and find some new advocates in our judges. Um, So we have an amazing panel of judges. Um, Everyone from, um, I don't know, you guys might know Tim Huang, since we're here, um, who is uh, in San Francisco, who's a great um, AI um, slash copyright law specialist. Um, He's kind of amazing. And then also um, everyone from Um, Jenna Wortham from the New York Times, uh, Walida Ishmarisha, who is one of the co editors of a book called Octavia's Brood, which is specifically um, uh, speculative fiction around, like from the social justice movement. It's a great book. You guys should all check it out. And um, uh, yeah, Alexis Madrigal from The Atlantic, also Carrie Putnam from the Sundance Institute. So we have like a huge range of media um, participating. And um, we're really excited to see what you guys come up with. So,
1: um, yeah. So ideally, what would come out of this? What are you hoping to see from these submissions?
3: Yeah, so we're not expecting anyone to draft policy. I wanna be clear about that. Um, Although, if you happen to, in 5,000 words or less, congratulations, um, that might be the winning submission. I don't know. Um, But I think that what we're hoping for is is a story that can um, capture people's imagination, and um, really steer the ship towards, um, you know, that like what people sometimes feel like is an unattainable um, utopia. <laughs> um, and so um, I just well, I, since I said the word utopia, I do want to be clear: it's not just utopia. There could be a dystopic story that wins too. The kind of Bottom line there is that we think that even if we had a universal basic income today and all of us had all of our needs met, there would still be some drama. So you could probably have a a dystopic uh, kind of storyline in a utopic economy. Um, Yeah, I think that that's like the bottom line is that we really want to get um, people's imaginations moving towards that big ultimate goal.
1: I will say personally, from many, many experiences, getting people to get past those initial policy details. How do you pay for it? What will happen with inflation? All, all the logistical aspects, which are important questions, but oftentimes block people from even getting to the idea of, oh, what impact might this have? And so I'm very excited to see what could come out as when people are thinking outside the box as far as what is the setting, what is the time. So a really big development and announcement in the American basic income space recently is, CASH Conference, which is happening right here in San Francisco, October 19th. Tell us about that.
3: I would love to. Um, so you guys all walked here or, or walked at least down the block today. Um, how many of you have been in the Mint, which is across the street on the corner of Fifth Mission? Great. So that's where the conference is going to be. And the whole idea there is that we're going to inhabit this kind of institutional um, space that has a long history of being an integral force in the American economy. At one point, a third of our nation's wealth was stored in this building just right over here. Um, It survived the 1906 earthquake. It has just like an amazing history to it. Um, And what better place to like reimagine our own economic futures? So we're gonna be doing that on October 19th. I hope you'll all join us. And um, like I said earlier, the idea is just to really kind of convene all of the different perspectives. We'll have panels on everything from automation to racial justice to the emotional labor market, um, entrepreneurism, um, and kind of everything in between. So we're really, uh, we're really trying to get at this basic issue of how cash could provide economic security for everybody from a whole bunch of different angles. Um, So there's a whole daytime program from 10 to five, a little bit more like a traditional conference. Panels, fireside chats. Um, And and then in the evening, we're gonna kind of, once that programming is done at five, we're gonna open up the vaults um, in the basement of the Mint. And that's like literally where we kept the money for many years. And um, there's like I think eight different vaults. They're amazing. I don't know if you guys have been down there, but it's brick building. Um, the vaults are all. I found out this crazy detail the other day. Each vault door has a different mechanism to lock as a security. Yeah, as a security um, measure. So like if you were to like figure out how to get into vault A. Wouldn't work on Val B. So, anyway, um, we've curated a whole bunch of local artists um, to come into that space and activate it for us, all thinking about cash and the economy. So, we'll have the Museum of Capitalism, which was in Oakland over the summer. I don't know if any of you guys got to check that out. They're going to come do a little mini pop up Museum of Capitalism. That project is about um, kind of imagining, it's a speculative project, imagining a world in which capitalism was an atrocity that happened to us that we need to remember. Um, so it's like, never forget. And um, there's a whole bunch of different um, artworks that they'll be bringing in. Um, we're also working with some local artists. Um, Erica Dixon, who came to one of your create-a-thons, um, is gonna be um, presenting. Actually, she's gonna be doing some gameplay with you guys. I don't wanna give away her whole project, but she's gonna be playing games with you in the vaults. And then, um, Also, Yatunde Olabaju from Oakland um, is gonna be doing some artwork looking into black bodies in the American economy. And um, we also have uh, Brittany Powell, whose debt project um, is gonna be on display down there. And those are beautiful um, photographs of people in their homes um, and these kind of handwritten letters about their own personal debt, um, which is very compelling. So we're going to have cocktails down there and an art party. And then we'll go back up into the space from 6 to 9 p.m. to kind of have a little bit more, you know, kind of inclusive. Is this your first time hearing about basic income? Like, that's the event you guys should bring your Tinder dates to that are like, I don't get it, What bring them to that event. And then we'll we'll all have the conversation together. Um, We'll have a band. There'll be a little bit more art and culture context around UBI.
1: So I know there are things still in motion, but are there any speakers that you can share with us?
3: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we'll have everyone from Andy Stern, who um, is a former SEIU president, um, who uh, basically wrote the book on, on basic income, um, and he's going to be there um, talking with uh, Natalie about automation and the future of work. We'll have Elizabeth Rhodes giving a dispatch from the Y Combinator Project in Oakland. We're going to have a panel um, on entrepreneurism that has a whole bunch of different people from the Bay Area um, that are going to be able to talk a little bit about how they currently support entrepreneurism in their work, um, and um, and then also about like looking forward about how uh, basic income could impact the work that they do. And then we'll also have uh, one of our co-chairs, Dorian Warren, is gonna be in conversation with uh, Sony, who is the um, I think president for the National Guest Workers uh, Alliance, and Anne Price um, as well from the East Bay, who is from Insight, and they're going to be talking a little bit about uh, racial justice and the kind of legacy of UBI in American civil rights, and also um, how you know what what's the path forward there for um, a basic income slash guaranteed minimum income.
0: That was Jim Pugh with Natalie Foster and Cara Rose on the Basic Income Podcast. I, for one, am very excited about the cash conference coming up on October 19th. There's going to be a lot of cool speakers and panels and even some art installations. Uh, and it's going to be at the Mint in San Francisco, so we'll be uh, talking and le- learning about basic income in a, a place that used to house a large percentage of the nation's wealth.
1: Yeah, we certainly see a lot more happening in the basic income space broadly these days. But there aren't that many instances where people are really coming to, coming together, particularly across disciplines, to really be having that that larger discussion and uh, to, to have that
0: energy shared amongst people who are, who are engaging in very different ways. Yeah, and there have been, you know, we've been to a few events where uh, you do have a lot of basic income people all in one room, and it's a very different energy to... To, to see this movement uh, all at once as opposed to just an isolated conversation. So if you're in the San Francisco area or can make it here, I highly recommend checking out the Cash Conference on the 19th. You've been
1: listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. And if you like what you hear, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And also tell your friends. We, again, are always looking for, for more people to reach – and to encourage them to think about what the world might be like with universal basic income. We'll talk to you next time.